Good morning and welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today's message is a part two from last week, examining the undeniable reality of our children's passive patterning of their attitudes and behavior from their parents and from other adults. We will be challenged today to examine one of the most, if not the most important of foundational truths to living the Christian life. Thanks for joining with us as we seek to model the fear of the Lord. Well, recently I was going through a box of old pictures, and uh, as you probably have a shoebox laying around your house somewhere, it's fun to revisit those old memories and take a look at uh, those moments captured in time. I noticed that I had quite a few old uh, pictures when I and my sister were in high school. Um, all around the dinner table. Um, as I w- was looking at them, I was reminded, ah, oh, yes, that's because of my aunt. I have an aunt who has taken it upon herself to always take pictures of people when they're eating. That's kind of <laughs> what she loves to do. And thankfully, we now have all these memories because of her. But uh, do, do you know uh, what people tend to be like, though, when you're ready to eat and somebody says, say cheese, right? <laughs> Yeah. In fact, I notice here right in the middle of the picture uh, a little bit of an attitude coming from my sister. And I thought, you know what, that's not regularly how kids feel when they say, say cheese. Usually kids love to have their picture taken. I thought maybe she's patterning this or getting this from someone else. And sure enough, there, I believe, is where it's coming from. Um, I think that probably shows just the nature of how excited my dad was to eat the meal, but being forced there to smile. Yes, as you can see, the way in which the parents uh, model before their children (laughs) seems to be uh, influential. Uh, the series we're in here is focusing on the, uh, the next generation and seeking that we would pass the faith on to them, that they would catch it and remain servants devoted to the one true God. Uh, this is a part two of what we looked at last Sunday called I'm, uh, I'm Watching You. And that's what our children are doing. They are watching us. Uh, that's for better, for worse. Sometimes people think, well, I, I don't know if I'm really prepared to mentor anybody or disciple anybody. I want to say, you know what? You are right now. You are mentoring them or you are discipling them, whether you realize it or not. By your behavior, your words, your attitudes, your responses. Uh, When somebody says, say cheese, and how you respond to that, you are giving before your children who are watching you a pattern of how they will carry those tools and ideas inside of themselves and therefore express at a young age or even later in life. I was this past week seated with some older members of a church in Crystal Falls. Bonnie and Tim, they're part of the uh, Curcio community. And uh, Bonnie was just sharing a prayer request for her next youngest grandchild. And uh, she recounted to me that she has six kids. Every one of those kids is in church today. And I said, Bonnie, what, what is the secret? How, how did you do that? And, and really, without skipping a beat, do you know what she said? She said, well, it all starts with prayer. I thought, well, that's fitting. I'm going to share that with the church. That's right. It all, she says, but I was not praying that they would be successful in life. I didn't pray that they would be healthy. I didn't pray that they would be wealthy. Instead, my prayer for them was, even while they were in the womb, was that they would be molded. That was the word she used. That they would be molded to desire to follow where God leads them. She said it starts with prayer. And then the second thing that she said is that her and her husband have celebrated 50 years of marriage. And I thought, hey, I'm going to share that with the church too. 
That we need to make sure the horses are before the cart in this. That husbands and wives are making sure that's the primary relationship. And if you want to cut a straight furrow in the field, you don't hook an ox and a donkey together. You don't have disunity between the husband and the wife, but they must be unified. And she gave testimony that that was part of her secret sauce for these children. And then the last thing that she said was every Sunday, her and Tim brought the kids to church without fail. She didn't leave it up to them. She didn't let them decide if they wanted to attend. She said, this is what our family did. That was the regular pattern of worship. And our kids understood that. Now, I, you know, just to be honest and true with her story, she said, it hasn't all been daisies and roses for, the, for her children and grandchildren. They go through trials and difficulties as well. But the testimony stands. How rare is it today to find a family of any number of kids, not to mention six, where all of them are serving today in a church and grandkids there hearing regularly the gospel proclaimed. What a great testimony. Our kids are watching us. Today, my goal is to focus us here on the second half of this idea of them watching to one single foundational thing that we can teach them. I want to make sure I repeat that again. I don't want to lose you. This is foundational. If we do this well, if we pay attention to what God's word has to say today, if we do this well, it will open up the door for such, so much more ease when it comes to patterning our kids after following the Lord. We have to know where the foundation lies. It's going to be a topic that sometimes gets misunderstood in the world and many times avoided by either churches or in our world. And it's the concept of the fear of the Lord. Uh, we're, we're going to look at main, mainly two passages in Proverbs and then just a smattering of other ones. But I have, I have lots of support passages. So we're really going to be through a, through a lot of passages of the Bible this morning. In fact, just to begin with, uh, instead of having you turn to all these, I just printed them off for myself to read you. The concept of patterning or modeling in the New Testament is seen almost on every page. Let me just give you a few examples here. Jesus, when he first calls his disciples, Matthew chapter 4, the text says, as he was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said. He, he didn't say become Christians. He didn't say go to synagogue. He didn't say go to church. He didn't say become righteous. He said what? Follow me. If, if you were to hear that as a first century Jewish person, you would understand this is a common expression given by a rabbi. Because to follow a rabbi, to follow a teacher, meant that you would take upon yourself all of the teachings that that teacher had. You would be following them, not just like a little duckling after its mommy waddling, but you would learn to do and become just like your teacher. You would, in a word, pattern your life after them. To be modeled after them. Again, Luke chapter 5. The text says, after this, Jesus went and saw a tax collector. How'd the Jews feel about tax collectors? Yeah, they didn't like them, right? This guy, Levi, sitting in a booth. Follow me, Jesus said. Now, both of these individuals we've looked at, the brothers, Peter and Andrew, and now Levi, the text says something in common after this. Both say, at once they left their nets for the for the fishing boys. And, and Levi says, at once he got up, left everything, and followed him. This idea of imitation, this idea of modeling, this idea of patterning. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, Paul says, follow my example as I follow Christ. 
The command given to the church in Corinth was to follow after their leader, Paul, because Paul himself was following after Jesus. Philippians chapter 3, Paul writes, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. Just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on all those who live as we do. In 1 Thessalonians, the third church we've looked at now, the church in Thessalonica, he writes these words, You became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And one more, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14, he says, For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches. Do you see the pattern? I, I, could, I could keep going. There's verses upon verses that really outline this as being the expectation within Christianity. When it comes to following Jesus, when it comes to being a Christian, it is not primarily an intellectual activity. It is an activity of learning to pattern your life and your behavior after one whose life and behavior have been changed by following Jesus. It's modeling. It's how we live. There's a foundation to this church. There's a foundation that we have to look at, and it's the fear of the Lord. Our first passage here is in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. The proverb very plainly here at the beginning of the whole book, setting the theme for the overarching reality of the whole book, says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. If you're going to have an understanding in this world, it begins, the foundation is the fear of the Lord. Now, there's good reason, I think, why people get confused on this. The New Testament of 1 John says, perfect love casts out fear. So, pastor, we shouldn't be afraid then, right? And I was, all right, fancy pants, time out for a moment. This doesn't mean, you've got to think about what they're saying here. The kind of fear that the, the epistle writers are talking about is the kind of paralyzing fear that keeps you from walking by faith. That's not what this is referring to here. The fear of the Lord is a kind of fear, and this word fear in English just really doesn't carry all the connotation that it did in the, in the Hebrew language. Fear here carries the same idea of reverence, respect, and awe. All of those concepts are wrapped up here in this one little word we have in English for fear. It's like uh, two, uh, two little girls that went on a trip to the zoo. Uh, they were going to go see the, the lion exhibit. And there was a door that said lions, but the door was cracked open and, and they weren't sure which way to go. So one of the little girls went through the door. The other one just walked along the path. And the, the second little girl, as she walked along the path, she saw there out in the safari area, the lions with all their majesty. Uh, she could see the muscles just reverberating over the sinews of their arms and their manes. Flowing in the wind as one gave out a roar, then suddenly she could tell the majesty of it. But there behind the glass, it was a nice spectacle, but then she moved on. Uh, The first little girl walked into the enclosure of the lions, and she had a very different experience with the lions. Having now found herself in the safari land, there she saw the majestic beast in front of her, suddenly roared at her, and then began to move quickly towards her, the sinews of its arms coming at her until at the last second as it began to gallop, someone pulled her back into safety. Now the girls get home, and the question asks, what did you see at the zoo? Do they have the same story, or is it different? It's a little different. Yeah, they both saw a lion. We saw a lion. Yeah, one of them really saw the lion. The fear of the Lord is to understand not just as a spectator, 
the majesty, awe, and power that exists within God. But it's to rightly place yourself in relation to that majesty. Does everybody understand what we mean here by fear of the Lord? If, if we're still working on it, that's what today's message is designed to really clear up. So in this passage, um, as we're seeking to uh, make a few observations, the first thing I want you to know is that the fear of the Lord is foundational in recognizing, recognizing and respecting God as God. You will not recognize God as God if you don't embrace the fear of the Lord. That type of understanding, the the awareness, the wisdom that will have you to live rightly with God begins with a fear of the Lord. I found this quote helpful in my study. It says, effective knowledge about God is the only thing that puts a man into a right relationship with the objects of his perception. It's all God's. It all belongs to him. We miss this sometimes. We, we forget the relational connection because we so easily get demonstrated with God like a child looking at a lion through glass. That there is no need to be afraid of his majesty, awe, his holiness that's there. Psalm 24, these words are given at the beginning. The earth is whose? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Belongs to who, church? Belongs to the Lord. Or this passage in the New Testament, John, right at the very beginning, after he says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. We have this, through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. I don't know how you can be any clearer on that. This world belongs to God. And so the fear of the Lord will help you place yourself in that correct understanding to recognize him as God and to respect him as God. Very simply, I feel like answers this question. This is his house. You live in his house. Belongs to him. Uh, You have a car? Anybody have a car? Ain't your car. Belongs to him. You have a house? Anybody have a house? Ain't your house. Belongs to him. You have health, you have a mind, will, and emotions. You, in fact, belong to him. All of this belongs to him. When I was uh, in in college, I was taking a sociology class, and I was part of a group that was going to do an experiment. So we went to the biggest mall uh, in Dayton, Ohio, and here's what we did for the experiment. We, um, I actually got to be kind of the main subject to it. We walked through the mall at this busiest time, and we had a few of the researchers a few uh, paces behind uh, those of us conducting the experiment. And my job was to be walking with a girl. And here through the mall, I was to take a $5 bill out of my pocket, but then drop it. And it would fall right behind me, but I was to pretend like nothing happened. And we were going to see how people responded as they saw that. And it was uh, 80% of the people who saw the $5 bill fall out of my pocket, picked it up and ran and gave it to me. They, they returned it, and the researchers are recording that. But then to do a kind of a test on this, we then planted $5 bills just around the mall and, and kind of stood back so no one could see watching those. And 100% of those $5 bills, when they were found, guess where they went? Right into their pockets, yeah. Here's what this showed us. If you saw who the owner was, you were likely to act a little differently concerning it. If you knew who it belonged to, 
your behaviors would change because you would now see a respect and a recognition of who the true owner was. You live in a place that doesn't belong to you. The world is whose? It's all God's. And you live in his house. Um, I'm, I meet regularly with a, a group of men on Wednesdays. We meet at Carlos Cantina. And one time I got there a little bit late. The guys had already sat down, but one of them was in the bathroom. And so you know how you're acting when you're late. I don't know. That's how I do. I'm always like, oh, I'm in such a hurry. Oh, gee, sorry. And I got there, sat down, and we always order just water with lemon. And I saw there was one in front of me. And I said, thank you for ordering for me. So I, this is what I do with lemon. I, I, some of you know where this is going already. Uh, I take the lemon, and I always squeeze it with my fingers. And I'm, I'm jamming it down in there and drinking it. And then I noticed my friend came back, and he said, can I get a water with lemon? Because I wasn't drinking mine. I was drinking his. See, I, I didn't have that awareness. If, if I knew that, if I wasn't being kind of an imbecile in that moment, my behaviors would have looked differently. Because I would have recognized that this didn't belong to me. But because I didn't have that recognition, I lived my life as though it did belong to me. If you want to have the foundation For how you and I have a right relationship with God, it starts with the fear of the Lord. That's what the verse says. So that's the first point. Here's the second verse I want us to look at. Now we're going to move to chapter 9 in the book of Proverbs. Once more, the fear of the Lord. Here's what it says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We kind of got that, right? That was chapter 1, verse 7. Look at the second part. And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. This was missing from our uh, verse in chapter 1. Uh, now here, the, the writer is having us to understand that there is something that will clue you in for proper behavior, specifically having a knowledge of the Holy One. The problem is, again, the word knowledge in English doesn't really convey the same sense as it did in Hebrew. In fact, your Bible will say, Adam knew Eve. Y'all know what that means? That word no means a little bit more than what we in English tend to have it identify. This is not simply that you're, oh yeah, I know God. I'm aware of God. I have knowledge of the Holy One. This is relational knowledge of God. Relationship-driven knowledge of God. That is necessary for the same fear of the Lord. I found this helpful in my study. The Hebrew words for knowing and knowledge are not simply about head knowledge, but often imply a relationship. Or this quote, knowing God is crucial to understanding this world and how to live in it. The concern here is about how to act in daily life, built on the foundation of knowing and respecting God. This moves me to my second point, which is the foundation that fear of the Lord will give us is in relating and revering God as God. So it's not just a matter of recognition. It's not just a matter of respect. But now it actually will form how we relate to God if we begin with the fear of the Lord. You guys still with me on this? Give me an amen if you're with me so far. Amen. All right. In the, uh, in the Old Testament, we have a, a picture of how this has been um, lamented by God. In Malachi chapter 1, this is through the prophet what God says. He says, a son honors his father. A slave, his master. If I'm a father, where is the honor due me? If I'm a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It's you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? 
by saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for a sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Will he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Do you see how their behavior was being conducted? They didn't have the fear of the Lord before their eyes. Time to go make a sacrifice. Yeah, take one of the ugly goats. Take one of the cripples. Offer that to God. You'll get away with that when you don't have the fear of the Lord. And you'll only get away with it temporarily because before God, he's going to recognize you're having a mistake here in how you're relating to me. I feel like you've kind of misunderstood this relationship. We're not buddies. I am God, he declares. Right of the book of Hebrews says that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the almighty God, for he is an all-consuming fire. The difference between, between seeing a, a lion behind glass and being in the presence of that lion. Your behavior will look very different if you do not have a foundational fear of the Lord. This passage in 1 Corinthians, the church here um, just in, in a, a vileness of vain worship, uh, uniting themselves with temple prostitutes. This is Paul's word to the church in Corinth. He says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And so the conclusion that I see coming from this is that if we have a healthy fear of the Lord, this will help us understand how, are we, how we are to behave in God's house. Have you ever been to um, a friend's house? Maybe uh, I'm thinking mainly when I was little. I remember walking in and hearing um, the dutiful mother say, Take your shoes off! <laughs> Ooh. Oops. Why? Because what were the rules? When you're in their house, right? Yeah, because you need to behave in a certain way when you are in that person's house. Well, we've already understood the recognition. Is this your house or God's? God. This is God's house. Do you know how you will be able to have a right sense of behavior if you have a foundational fear of the Lord? If you understand God for who he is, to relate to him and recognize in relationship that God is God, guess what will happen to your behavior? It will change to follow in kind with that for which it pleases God. All right, last one here. And these are a few verses. I'll just put them up here at once. <coughs> Proverbs 10 says, uh, the fear of the Lord prolongs life. But years of the wicked will be shortened, Proverbs 14, 26. In the fear of the Lord, there's strong confidence, and his children will have refuge, Proverbs 14, 27. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death, in Proverbs 19, 23. The fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. Every one of these has something in common, and it's simply this here, my third and final conclusion. Having the fear of the Lord is foundational in receiving the blessings of a right relationship with God. If you want to know the right way to live in his world, you will have a fear of the Lord to dictate those behaviors and you will reap from that then the blessings that come from rightly living in his house. I'd like us to turn in our Bibles to a passage to look at. I'm, uh, we're essentially through with uh, the, the Proverbs, but I want to read through a parable real quick as we work towards conclusion here. If you turn in your Bibles, please, Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. Jesus here is going to give a parable that relates 
to the reality of God's ownership over you and over this world and how those who would be following under his command need to behave and conduct themselves. Luke chapter 12, page 1483 in the Pew Bibles. I'm going to start in verse 35 and just read through a a little bit of the story here that Jesus gives. Luke chapter 12, verse 35. Jesus says, Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning. Like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet. So that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. Did you catch it? Everybody with me on this? He gives some metaphors here, right? Live how? Ready. Watching. The idea of a lamp burning is that you're, you're keeping vigilant for what's around you. Ready. This is how you're watching. And then he gives a picture, a metaphor. Here, here's how I want you to do it. In the same way as a servant whose master has left them in charge because the master has gone on a journey and he is going to return back. So the moment when he comes to those servants, ready and willing to open that door. Uh, I'm going to continue here. Verse 37. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth. He will dress himself to serve and will have them recline at the table. And we'll come and wait on them. I got a whole 30-minute sermon just on that. I'm going to spare that for another time, right? But that is an amazing privilege. Did you hear really what it said? The servants get to eat where? With the master, and the master waits on them. Who deserves that? That's incredible promise. Verse 38, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready. Even if he comes on the second or the third watch of the night. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house get broken into. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you don't expect him. Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them food, their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth. He will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose, watch this now, verse 45. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master's taking a long time in coming. And then he begins to beat the men servants and maidservants and eat and drink and get drunk. That uh, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, at an hour when he is unaware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. It's the fear of the Lord that is missing from that one servant. Did, did you see what he was doing? Come on, you guys. He ain't going to be back for a while. I know this guy. He stay, he's going to be gone for a long time. Look at all this food we got here. And that servant forgot it belonged to who? Forgot it belonged to the master. And that loss, that one little change that happened in his heart, changed his behavior. Did you see how he behaved then? He starts beating people as though he were in charge, as though he were the master. He starts gobbling up the food and drinking to the point of getting drunk because he thinks it's his food. He has missed the crucial element, the foundational element which is having a healthy fear of the Lord and understanding that God is God, that you would recognize that, that you would relate to him in that and that you would then receive the benefits of living with him like that. In Ecclesiastes, here are some warnings. Uh, Ecclesiastes 8.13. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them. 
and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. And just one last verse, Romans 3. This this is an important one, though. I'm going to read through it. I want you to pay attention to this. Paul writes, As it's written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They together have become worthless. There There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Do you you see what caused all this? This right here is Paul quoting a lot of different passages to make the argument that all men are equally under sin and condemnation. There's nobody who's good. If you think you're good, you're deceiving yourself. All have sinned. Why? What is it characteristically that's woven into the heart of fallen man that will lead you to that kind of behavior? It's nothing short of this. People are born without a fear of God. They're like that master who thinks, this is my stuff, right? This is my lemon water, right? (laughs) And your behavior follows a kind of self-service because you have made yourself the master. You have made yourself in a position of God. The fear of the Lord is foundational in receiving the blessings of a right relationship with God. And this is the benefit of living in his house. Now, what does all this mean for us? If there is a generation out there that, I, and I didn't have any stats. I'm sure you were grateful for that today, right? This is the first time I didn't begin the message with a bunch of, bunch of statistics. Don't worry, I got a whole bunch more. They're coming later. The generation that's leaving the church faster than any other generation is the youngest generation. And I believe it's because they lack the fear of the Lord in their lives. If we're going to find a way to stem the tide of that exodus from the church, here's what I'm going to challenge us with. You must model the fear of the Lord. It must be something that from their lives is caught and not only taught. Do you get the difference between those rhyming words? Things that are taught are, let me sit down and give you a lesson. That was my grandpa saying, do what I say, not what I do. And I'm I'm not just watching what you are saying. I'm watching you. I'm watching how you live. Which means if the fear of the Lord is so foundational in our salvation to live rightly in God's house, then it must be modeled. It must be a characteristic of how we live our lives. I don't have any other slides on this, but just a few things that I wrote down uh, that I do in my own family. When I discipline my kids, I always try to relate it to the commands of God. I don't say this is going to hurt you more than it hurts me. That's what my dad used. I don't say that. I say something like the reason why I have to discipline you is because God has made me your father. God will hold me accountable for how I raise you. And so my discipline of your behavior is really my own submission to the fear of the Lord. Do do you see the pattern? If I'm calling my children to respect the authority that exists over them, I can't just teach it. I have to model that I myself fall under the authority of another. It needs to be lived out. I'll tell, I'll tell my son to, that he doesn't necessarily need to get A's in school, but he needs to try his best. Well, why? Well, not because I said so, but because God is the one who has given you these abilities. I always want to relate all of my teaching, all of my instruction to recognizing the authority that exists above me. Because when I do that, I model submission to authority so that my children will see it lived out. 
one of the things that um, I want to, well, I, we do that I want to encourage you to do is to recognize your faith as, as a God that you serve. I've said this many times. Don't leave God in church. Now, you remember what that means? That means that you allow behavior of worship to characterize how you live outside of church. Animistic societies do this. They, they all have their little gods and they live their lives in accordance to those gods. Do you have a God? Then live your life in accordance to worship that God, how you live. Recently, my family and I were at, at a restaurant, a fast food restaurant, and, and we sat down and there's people all around us. Well, the pattern in our home when we have a meal in front of us is we hold hands and we bow our heads and we pray. So what are we going to do when we're in public? We're going to hold hands, we're going to bow our head, and we're going to pray. And I know that there's judgmental eyes looking at me for that. And you know what? I don't care because I have the fear of who? Not the fear of these yahoos around me. (laughs) The sinners like me who are in need of God's grace. My fear is of the one above me. And I know that I need to give thanks for the food is not mine. Whose is it? It comes from him. And I dwell in his house. Your kids are watching you. They're watching you. They're patterning their life after you. And the most foundational thing that you can do is model before them the fear of the Lord. They're watching. Let's pray.